So there was a man, in case you never heard of him, his name was George Washington Carver, uh, a great man, did a lot of great things. Um, primarily what he did is he studied uh, botany, and um, he helped really, especially poor and underprivileged people understand uh, they, could, they could get a lot of nutrition and plant a lot of things that were not popular at the time. He's commonly most popular for what he did with the peanut, and personally, I thank God he did absolutely love peanuts, but this man came up with like a hundred different inventions related to the peanut alone. Now, none of them really made much money or whatever, but his name is synonymous with the peanut. Now, he didn't create the peanut. God created the peanut. He just helped people understand how to plant it and what to do with it, and especially poor people, and there was a lot of protein and nutrition packed inside that puppy, and then later, Reese's would discover it, and heaven (laughs) was born. But I love this little quote from George Washington Carver. He says this, And when I was young, young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, That knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, Okay, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, Well, George, that's more nearly your size. And then he told me. There's something about the humility of George Washington Carver. Clearly, he was telling a joke. None of us can grasp the depths, the breadth of the universe. It wasn't until we were able to create telescopes and launch them into space that we really were able to grasp exactly what it is we were seeing in distant places. Many of the night lights we saw, we now know, are not just stars, but they are actual galaxies that are billions and billions, even trillions and trillions of miles away out somewhere in space. It is mind-boggling how big space is. And yet, the Bible tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's because when we look up at the expanse of the sky, when we finally build a telescope big enough to study these things and look at them and understand them, we begin to see the power, the might, the majesty, the detail, the organization of our creator. And then we find out that he created not just the breadth and the depth and the bigness of the universe, but he also created the tiniest detail in each of us. As we read our Bible, we find out that that same God who did both the big and the little, there's actually a website, you could do that, by the way. You can actually zoom out to the biggest things we know of in the universe and then zoom all the way down to the tiniest things we've been able to discover and some of those like Hadron particle collider things and whatnot. It's a cool little website. You can see all these different things along the way and find out how short I really am. And you thought I was short. I gave you shorter on there. And as you do this, you begin to see that God is so detailed But bigger than that, bigger than that, he loves you. So he didn't just uh, coordinate the bigness and the detail of the universe, but he actually placed in you and he placed in me a little piece of himself. So that when we gather together as a church, we find all of us together more represent God than any of us do alone. And it's amazing to me, this God that we serve. So what we want to do today is wrap up the series, Just Love. And as we've done in the first two messages, we want to look at this one verse, uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, this will be on the screen. You could download our app in your app store, follow along there, or you could just watch the screen. Um, if you're listening online, um, I'll try to go slow enough that you can understand my words. All right, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This has been our text for this whole series here. It says this, Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, 
to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what we did is we said this. Uh, the first week we looked at to do what is right. And I told you right and just are the same thing. They're synonymous in scripture. So if you want to do justice, you must do the righteous thing. And I want you to process this. In case you didn't hear anything else we said in the earlier parts of the series, to do what is right means that if it's the right thing to do, it doesn't matter how hard it is, you have to do it. That's what it means to honor the Lord. But we do this in mercy. We love mercy. So when we find somebody who's hurting or oppressed or suffering, when somebody has wronged us, instead of rising up and retaliating, what we do is we show patience and we show grace and we show mercy because that's what God shows us. But today I want to talk about this last one. Walk humbly with your God. This is hard, okay? So I did a message on humility in Philippians 2 a month or two back. And I'll tell you the same thing now I told you then. If I get up and speak about humility, I'm immediately disqualified. Because either, number one, if I'm telling you to follow my lead, then I'm no longer humble. So you shouldn't follow me. But if I'm standing up and telling you, I don't know how to do this, I have not learned anything, then you shouldn't listen to me anyway, because why would you listen to somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about? So I find myself in a bit of a quagmire. That's a big word. You can write that down. I find myself backed into a corner because I have not nailed this one. I just want to be honest. But I've learned some things, and I know some things are true, even though I struggle to do them. And that's how I want you to hear everything I'm saying today. So, what does it mean to walk humbly with God? I think I have four of these. Here's the first one. You ready? Walking humbly with God means this, knowing who God is. Walking humbly means knowing who God is. This is important because whenever God talks about who he is, he always defines his character and not his action. Later, he'll often give an action to point back to his character. So you'll find things like, remember when I pulled water from a rock. Remember when I split the Red Sea. Remember when I humbled your enemies through these miracles. Remember when I, remember when I. But all of those are pointing back to these three things we saw in the series. A just God who loves mercy and gives it to the humble. Those are the three things I want you to see. He's a just God, and he gives mercy to the humble. The fact that he's a just God means that he cannot allow evil and injustice to happen on his earth. He would not be a good God if he did. All injustices will go punished. Take that one in for a minute. When? Well, they'll either be punished in the cross of Christ, or they'll be punished through his mighty hand. But the way that we don't get the mighty hand of God is the fact that we get his mercy through the cross of Christ. Now, the question is, how do we get it? All of these three things come out of his character. Because he is just, because he is true, because he is merciful and kind and gracious, when we humble ourselves, we're actually becoming just like him. Now, don't miss this. That same God who created those distant galaxies that we kind of talked about, you know, you can't even see yet. Those, that same God who put inside each of those galaxies billions and billions of stars, and around each of those stars, who knows how many planets, and around each of those planets, who knows how many moons, and who knows how many green little people wandering around on them. Okay, I'm not sure I believe in aliens. I don't know. Whatever. I'm open to it. However much stuff is still yet out there, that same God took on flesh literally became a man and dwelt among us. 
Now, I don't want you to miss this. If you're visiting with us today, you're like, why is he hammering this point over and over and over again? Well, when John writes his gospel, the book of John, in John chapter 1, he starts it in this way. In the beginning was the word. And he starts his book that way because he's paralleling John 1, 1 and 2 with Genesis 1, 1 and 2, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's literally writing in the same way, said that you will know this word who became flesh, that's Jesus who took on flesh, is God. He goes on later in John chapter 1 to say, in that same creator who is God, is Jesus, and literally he formed everything that has ever been made. This is huge for us. Huge. As our president-elect would say. This is huge because if Jesus is the creator, then we live everyday life as a part of his creation. The battle that I have been experiencing in all my life, the battle that you're experiencing in all of your life, is the battle to acknowledge who really is in control. Are you with me? Let's just be honest for a minute. Look at your life for a second and answer this question. Is your greatest tension in life coming from your battle with God over what you can do with your money, your life, your job, your finances, your time? It is for me. Because everybody else around me won't play according to my rules. It makes it even harder. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says this. Get this. Charles Spurgeon says, Humble walking with God signifies, first, a perception of God's being and presence. We must know that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We must distinctly recognize that there is a God and that he is near us. That he is real and true and that we are living in actual nearness to him. All right, let that sink in for a minute, and especially this last line. Charles Spurgeon, he's dead now, but is a phenomenal pastor, preacher, wrote lots of books, trained lots of guys like me. Love this last line. God is real and true, and we are living in actual nearness to him. You know what that means? At every moment of every day, God is there, and he's watching. And this does two great things to us as it relates to justice and mercy and humility. Justice. God is watching at every moment. So now, it's February the 10th. I think that's what taxes are due, isn't it? It's October the 10th. (laughs) You filed an extension. (laughs) And you're trying to decide what number to write down. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm probably not going to get audited. I could probably get away with this. And no one will know. But he's literally seeing everything. And he's there in every moment. Or that's that person at the office with you, right? And when you walk by their desk, their office intentionally, always seeming to run into them at the water cooler or whatever. Do people do water coolers anymore? I don't know. And you run into them on purpose so you can have that conversation. And it seems so innocent. Nobody would know except for your heart, your eyes. You know that you're getting more from that conversation than anybody else. And you think it's innocent, it's harmless, and nobody knows but me. 
Except God is there and he sees everything and he is near every moment. How about that business deal you got going down? And you're struggling because you think to yourself, man, I could say X. And if I say X, it'll probably seal the deal. Now, it's mostly true, but it's not all the way true. But what's it going to hurt? I mean, they're going to do this deal with somebody. They might as well do it with me. And besides, I'll give part of the money away. Except that you're forgetting that God is real and true, and he's right there right now. But how about this one? You get the news and now you find yourself in the hospital and you don't even know what to do. Your head is just spinning. What am I going to do? What does this mean? How is this new information going to change my life? And either everybody has left and you're just sitting there or nobody has showed up yet. Maybe nobody will show up. And you're starting to wonder, God, where are you? And the reality is, To walk humbly with God is acknowledging who he is. And what is he? He is right there, right now. And he's going to give justice and he's going to give mercy in every single moment. How about this one? Remember that time when that person kept doing that terrible thing to you? And you thought that God didn't care, he wasn't watching, or he must not be powerful. And then you learn that God is full of just and God is full of mercy. And he's right there, right then. So when we start to grasp this concept of who God is, it begins to humble us. Because we realize in any given moment, catch this, at any given moment, the justice of God is a step away. The justice of God is coming. So when you're in a moment and someone is being evil to you, the justice of God is coming for them. You can take solace in knowing he's watching and they are not off the hook. Also, when you find yourself in a moment where you're doing something you know you're not supposed to do, you may think because no one ever catches you, you got away with it. But God is watching and he's there and he knows. And see, this could create in you pride and arrogance, and you could puff up, or this could create something else in you, and this desire to acknowledge that God is powerful and in control. And if God is powerful and in control, then what it can do is instead of rising up and puffing up, it can humble you and make you realize that God is is going to do something about the injustices of earth, and he's going to do something about the evil and the pain of this earth, and he's just calling you to be humble about it. In fact, here's the second thing I want you to latch on to. Walking humbly with God means knowing that, no, sorry, knowing who has the power and the authority. This is huge. So when we say things like, well, it's my body, I'll do what I want. It's not, though. Well, it's my home, it's my family, it's my money, but it's really not. I mean, just take a look at this one verse alone. Psalm, or two verses. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Oh, except for your house. He forgot about you. No, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to what? Him. Now, let's just stop there before we go to the next verse. That means that every single person on the face of the earth, believer and unbeliever, belong to Him. So when you wrong somebody else and you justify it in your mind, what happened? They belong to 
him. And now you've put God in a very, very awkward place. Because he loves you, but he loves them, and he cannot allow injustice to happen. It all belongs to him. He has all the power and all the authority. Verse 2, for he laid the earth's foundation on the seas, and he built it on the ocean depths. What's the author of this Psalm 24 trying to get to? He's trying to let you know that God is the one in control. Why? Because he's a creator. So he sets the rules for good and bad. He sets the rules for right and wrong. It's not about me or anybody else trying to be cruel or mean. It's simply about God saying, this is right and this is wrong. Well, how do we know what right and wrong is? It goes back to his character. He's calling all of us to live our lives in light of his character. So, uh, this weekend. It's hard, by the way, being a pastor and having kids because some of my best illustrations in life come from them, but these poor little guys, like they are the preacher's kid. They're already going to grow up in a fishbowl with everybody watching them and wondering every time they mess up, um, aren't you the preacher's kid? You know, they're going to hear that a lot. And then when you tell stories on them publicly, man. So anyway, a great story happened this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you're, I don't know if any of you guys have this. There's these little tunnels. They like completely collapse. They got like a little metal thing that's like circular inside them. You could tie a rope or a little string around them and they'll stay like this. As soon as you untie that, they go out. They're just like a tunnel on the ground. My kids love it and they get in there and they love to block one in and they get in there and they try to kill each other. I don't know what they're doing. I can't see in it. Um, there's usually just a lot of screaming and crying inside it. Well, they wanted to play in it and mama was out having some mama time. And I'm like, hey, this seems harmless enough. They can go in there and I can't see what they're doing so they can get away with it. And so I undo the tunnel and they're playing around. They're having fun. And I'm trying to clean the house for my wife and bless her. I know I'm amazing. And uh, there's that humility again, see? <laughs> anyway, so I noticed because I'm upstairs getting dirty laundry from upstairs and I'm taking it downstairs. I notice one of my sons is standing about six inches away from the top of the step. He's inside the tunnel. It's over him. Now, this thing goes over my head, which I realize isn't that tall, but it's still taller than all my boys. It's over his head. He's inching his way to the edge of the stairs. Now, in his grandiose plan, because he's my son, he thinks he's going to get to the edge of the stairs and slide down the stairs. And at the last second, I raise my voice. I say, stop! Now, he's talking to me from inside the tunnel. Why, Daddy? Because you're going to fall down the stairs. And he says, how do you know? <laughs> what do you mean, how do I know? Well, how do you know? What does how do I know have to do with anything? I said, stop. Now, who has the power of authority in our relationship? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Curtis. <laughs> and for those of you listening online and miss why everybody's laughing, because he yelled my wife. True story. What's really going through my head is, I don't care if you die. I just don't want to explain it to your mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's not true. I kind of care. So, what's going, so I say to him, because now I'm having a logical conversation with a young child, right? I say to him, son, if you go about another six inches, I know you can't see it. You're going to come to the edge of the stairs. And I know in your mind, you think this is going to be great. You're just going to slide down the tunnel, down the stairs. It's going to be a lot of fun. Like when you're outside on the slide, it's not going to work that way. And he says, you don't know. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> hey, look, I was right. No, I'm just kidding. CPS, you don't need to call me. I had to give a very strong word of rebuke. 
Now, I was not joking. I was not playing. We were not messing around. This was not a way we were going to play. I told my wife the story later to get brownie points as she thanked me for protecting our kids. Now, here's the thing. My son and I love him, but he loves to ask that question. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? One time I've even had to look at this particular son of mine and say, son, I know you think you know more than me, but you need to trust your daddy. Your daddy loves you, and I'm telling you to do this because I love you. One of my other sons looked at me and said, why do we have to do what you want, but you don't have to do what I want? I said, because on my business card, I have the title daddy. That didn't go over real well, but... Listen, guys, if I'm an earthly dad who's broken and imperfect, but I have responsibility over my kids, and me being a dad is just an example of God being a father, think about it for a minute. Who has ultimate power and authority? When God has this conversation with Job at one point, Job just went through a brutal season of life, brutal. I mean, literally, his kids are all murdered. Almost all of his possessions are taken from him. He's covered in sores. And Job is crying out to God, calling out God's character. Why are you doing this? How dare you? And the entire last few chapters of Job are amazing because God shows up. And he never condemns Job. He never shames Job. He just shows up and says, Job, you don't even understand the question you're asking. Where were you, Job, when I created the sun, the moon, the stars? Where were you, Job, when I built the horse and all this beauty and power? Where were you, Job, when I made the ostrich to run so fast and yet so really not intelligent and steps on its own? Where were you, Job, when I created this beautiful uh, monster in the sea? Where were you, Job, when I created this thing that might actually have been a dinosaur? Who knows? Where were you, Job, when I, and he just did this thing after thing. Where were you, Job? Tell me, do you know where the snow is stored before it comes falling down to the earth? Do you understand that, Job? Because if you, I want to hear all about it. And as God just goes through his creation, he just kind of puts Job back in his place and says, Job, you have no idea, no idea what I'm doing in the world. All power, all authority rests with me. And since you don't have a clue, Job, I just need you to take a deep breath and trust me. Easier said than done, I know. But here's the thing, you need to know this. God is merciful. He's not just a cruel God. Do you know what he did to Job next? He blessed Job. Gave him twice as many kids. Gave him more than everything he took away from him back. You shouldn't expect God to always do that. That's just what God chose to do with Job. But the power of the story of Job is that God blessed Job in his mercy. He's not just a tyrant or a dictator. He's not cruel or evil. He is good and compassionate and merciful and loving. He's a father. The best father we've ever known. This is why C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, I've been reading this lately again, tells this phenomenal illustration. And he says this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he was doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're really not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it. 
himself. I love, C.S. Lewis just has a way with words, doesn't he? I love the way he tells the story because what C.S. Lewis is trying to paint the picture of us, most of us understand that God is just and merciful, and we think that God needs to get in on our plan, but what you don't realize is God is trying to do the opposite. He's trying to get you in on his plan. And what I have seen in my life, and so maybe this is you, is when I hear that still small voice of God calling me and telling me to do something, to change something, to bless here, to be generous here, to be sacrificial there, when I call him or hear him calling me and I don't do it, he's patient for a season. But because he's a good and loving and faithful father, sooner or later he just knocks the wall out on its own. Man, I got to tell you, it hurts when he does. And I could tell you so many stories about so many times where I didn't respond to God the way he asked me to, when he asked me to, and finally he said, I love you too much to leave you here. So then he goes and does something radical. But he has all the power and the authority to do that. Part of being humble in the presence of God is just accepting that he can do what he wants with my life. It's his. That leads us to the next thing I want you to get about walking humbly. Walking humbly with God means repenting from sin and seeking mercy. First, mercy with God, and then second, mercy with others that you've wronged. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. And this is hard. The word repent in the Hebrew is the word shub. You could say shuv or shub. It's pretty much pronounced the same. And it literally means to turn. In fact, if you were from the military or military family, it would basically mean an about face. You're heading one direction, you stop, and on a dime, you turn and go the other way. I believe it's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22, or 2.22, I always get them confused. In that particular passage, God uses the same word three times, and he says, You, O faithless Israel, have turned away from me. So the whole visual there is they were in a face-to-face relationship, God and his people. But they've turned away from him. They've literally turned their back on God. And now they're going away from him. And he says, turn, shoo back to me, and then I will heal you of your shooting. You've turned away from me, turned back to me, and I will, what? Heal you. Part of being humble before God. See, if you understand his character, that he is just, he does not let sin go unpunished. He is merciful. He has already paid for it on the cross. And he gives grace to the humble. When you realize that he has all power, all authority, he alone is the creator, then when you start to see the sin in your life, the things that you've done that you know aren't right or honorable to him, and you turn to him, what you find is mercy. What you find is grace. An Old Testament prophet, Zephaniah, who we hardly ever talk about, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 says this, "'Gather before judgment begins.'" Before your time to repent is blown away like chaff, act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are what? Humble and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. There's this phrase often used in the Old Testament to describe a day that's coming. And it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. In actuality, Jesus ushered in the beginning of this great and terrible day. 
The final great and terrible day will come when Jesus returns for the second time. Great and terrible, why? Great because on that day, those who have humbled themselves before God, who surrendered and said, I need a Savior, I need you, Lord, would you forgive me, who have repented and turned from their sin to him, they will find untold mercy and grace. Terrible. Because those who haven't are still carrying the weight of their sin without a Savior. Don't ever let the great and terrible day of the Lord escape you. I believe it was Hebrews that says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. It's terrifying. And yet when you find yourself there in mercy, it's glorifying. James says it this way in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? In other words, do you really just think that these things are just written but have no purpose? They have all purpose. The scriptures, the Bible says that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Now, let me just unpack that. When you came to faith in Christ, in order to unleash God in your life, you must repent. That doesn't mean you don't ever have to repent again. That doesn't mean there aren't things that you didn't know you needed to repent of that he'll teach you later. But coming to faith in Christ, that first step is a step of surrender, God, I'm in. I love you. I want you in my life. Take my life, Lord, whatever you want from me. Now, as he reveals what he wants from you, it's a constant repentance and a constant surrender I have found in my life. But when that happens, God's spirit comes to live inside you. That's who's doing the building inside you. And what James is trying to say is that spirit that God has placed in you, he's jealous. He's passionate. When you go and rebel against God by doing what you want instead of what he wants, that spirit inside you grieves, Paul says. In fact, Paul encourages us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when you rebel against God, he's inside you going, don't lead me into this. I always obey my Father. The Holy Spirit, who is God, is humble enough to do exactly what the Father tells him. This is why Peter tells us, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. So you have everything you need inside you already through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors him. So this is what James says next, verse 6. And he gives grace generously. I don't know about you, but do you ever read a little sentence like that? Y'all just like, go. Thank you, God. Because I keep messing this thing up. And as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the really successful. That's how we read it sometimes, right? Like, I don't need to just humble myself before God. I'll just work harder for him. But the scriptures say God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, so humble yourselves before God. (laughs) Resist the devil and he's going to flee from you. Come close to God. God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. In other words, you cannot be humble and be loyal to the wrong master. The only way to be humble is to be loyal to the right master. But I want you to see this. God showed this to me. I believe it was back at Bible College. It's been a couple years since he showed this to me. I want you to look at verse 7 again. Look at verse 7. I believe that, that Jesus, or James here is writing basically a Jesus Oreo, okay? 
So verse 7, humble yourselves before God. That's like the little cookie on one end. Now, in America, we have this uh, spiritualization, Hollywoodization of demonization. So we have all these movies, right? They're really popular on October. Everybody loves to go get scared. We love to watch movies about uh, demons and people being cast out and ghosts. And, man, we have all this stuff that we watch today. It has absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. So then stuff happens, and we don't know what to do with it. We just categorize it as demons. And it doesn't line up with Scripture's teachings at all. James' entire teaching right here on this is simply this. Humble yourself before God, one cookie. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Notice what James doesn't say. James doesn't say run around their house yelling at demons. But how many times we see that even in Christian movies today? And the thinking out there is, and the louder we yell, the more he must obey. Or if I just use the right words, the right phrase, all you're doing is, is uh, repeating a pattern of incantation then. And this is huge. Some of you I know are lost because this isn't really something you struggle with, but many Christians in this room, like me, wrestle with what do I do with the demonic world? Well, the demonic world is really real. How do I defeat the enemy? I resist him. I humble myself before God. And when I've humbled myself before God, I have authority over the spiritual world. I don't have to yell. I don't have to scream. I don't have to get the exact right words. Because my power doesn't come from me getting the right word or being bigger or stronger or louder. My power comes from the one I humbled myself under. And he has all authority. And then verse 8. So come close to God. And what's he going to do? Come close to you. Yesterday, um, I was trying to get some projects done around the house, and I was watching my Buckeyes try to throw away yet another game this year, and um, I was kind of playing it on my phone as I went from room to room, more listening to it, kind of looking down and watching a play here and there, and one of my sons was really trying to get my attention. You know, it's hard for them to understand sometimes that daddy can't just be their best friend and play partner all the time. You may have kids too, and, um, but I was starting to sense the Spirit say to me, he just needs you right now. So there was a couple minutes left in the game, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go, and everything in me wanted to yell at the demons that were making them lose the game. I'm joking. And I just sat down. My son was having a hard time, and I said, hey, buddy, come here. And he came over, and he said, what? He thought he was in trouble. I said, sit here. And I handed him the phone. He said, can I hold it? I said, yeah. And I just put my arm around him, and I just drew him close. I said, let's just watch the rest of the game together. And all those things he'd been doing to disobey me, all those things he'd been doing to rebel against me, acting out to try to get my attention or whatever, just drew him in. Yes, I could discipline him. Yes, I could put him in timeout. Yes, I could do all those things. But what he really needed right now was just to be close to his daddy. Because right here, he's safe. Right here, he's protected. He's cared for. He's loved. And humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the hand that made the universe. He has all the power to do whatever he wants or needs. Just love him. So walking humbly with God lastly means this. It means becoming like Using the same broken analogy of me as an earthly dad to my kids, like it or not, I see me and my kids all the time. 
I love it when I see them doing something kind and generous and something I'm like, they so got that from me. Their mom disagrees. Um, I'm joking. But it drives me crazy when I see in them uh, the things that are just my personality that I, I just hate, the things that I've not yet surrendered or mastered in, in my faith yet. And sadly, they're picking up both. But the goal for every believer is for us to walk humbly with God means we are going to become like him. So we start with God's character. We study who he is. We learn about his justice and his mercy. We learn about his grace and his patience and his wrath. And then our goal is to become like him. Because he has authority over everything, we surrender to him. So we repent to him. We walk with him. And now we're trying to become like him in these ways. We are literally on a mission of justice and mercy. And when we're off that mission, when we start living selfishly, man, God's not pleased. And he will deal with us. There's this one point where Jesus is teaching. And this one group that keeps opposing him, the religious teachers, but especially the Pharisees, they're constantly challenging Jesus' ministry. And at one point he says this, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. He says this, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees? hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Where do you think Jesus got those three things? Micah 6, 8. Yes, you should tithe, but do not neglect the more important things. Now, hold on. What Jesus is saying here, you can imagine these Pharisees. Now, a tithe is a literal 10%. You can imagine these Pharisees literally waiting for months for their crops to grow. And as the crops are actually coming up and producing, they're pulling them out and, and measuring exactly one-tenth of everything. I mean, you could see them almost down to, okay, well, a leaf for me, a leaf for me, a leaf for me, nine leaves for me, one leaf for, for God. Okay, another one, another. I mean, they're literally, they're, they're meticulous to get it right. So that they can go and say, I tithe. And Jesus says, you should be that meticulous. But you're missing the point. If being that meticulous about walking with God is all you've got, then you have nothing. Because you're missing things like justice and mercy and faith. You're the same people that can walk by someone, see them in need, and do nothing about it. In fact, at one point, Jesus tells that very story. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. One of these same religious teachers of the law comes to Jesus and says something like, well, you tell me to love my neighbor as myself is, is the second greatest thing, so tell me, how do I do that, or who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. They walk into a bar, and, um, okay, they don't really, just making sure you're paying attention. There's this man who's been robbed and beat up and laying on the side of the road almost dead, and a priest walks by and he does nothing, and a Levite somebody who works in the temple walks by and does nothing and then a Samaritan walks by and so you get the weight of the story today this would be like if a Muslim walked by see if Jesus were here telling the story today you'd be sitting there going whoa see the Muslim stopped and he bound up the man's wounds and then he took him to the hotel and he told the hotel the innkeeper if you care for him I'll pay all of his bills if back when I come through town the next time you just do whatever it takes to care for him and I'll pay the rest of the bill next time I come through town and Jesus looks at this religious teacher and says now tell me tell me who acted like a neighbor well clearly the samaritan did in our context clearly the muslim did Jesus says then fine go do the same it's not enough to just be morally pure it's not enough to just be uh, technically right we must actually be people of mercy, people of kindness. 
James in chapter 3, verse 13 says this. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. So I'm going to close out. I'm watching this Mac computer screen go crazy, which tells me I think we might have lost our computer system. It's cool. But that means you're not going to have this quote, so I'll read it to you. Or you can download the app. This would be a good time to do that. Real quick, what I want to do is leave you with a challenge. So when you leave here today, right outside these doors is my journey. It's a booth we have set up. Over these next five weeks, you are going to be more busy than at any other time of the year. Am I right? You're going to go right from Thanksgiving and all those preparations of family celebrations of travel into shopping for Christmas, work Christmas parties, church things going on. Then you're going to celebrate Christmas and go right into New Year. And this year, Christmas and New Year fall on a Sunday, which is just going to make it even busier for you because of the way everything lands. And you're going to have the temptation over these next five or six weeks to forget that there are a lot of people in our culture, in our community, who are hungry, poor, lonely, sick, and homeless. So what we're doing is we're just asking Kingsway people to find a ministry to serve in over these next five weeks. Go to a homeless shelter. I saw a small group went to Get Real Inc., a ministry we love in our community. Uh, Katie Wolf from our church has launched this ministry to help young girls uh, protect them from the evils of this world and help rebuild and restore what the enemy has taken down. And a life group just went over to clean and paint, I believe, and just to help out there. Did a phenomenal job. We're asking all Kingsway people just to take a couple hours between now and Christmas and to be a people of mercy. I want you to have perspective, though, for this next quote. See, I think we often struggle with, I don't know how to stop uh, dads from leaving the house. I don't know how to stop uh, people from engaging um, in sex outside of marriage and wanting to get abortions. I don't know how to stop uh, orphans from being abandoned by their parents. I don't know how to stop fill in the blank of the various evils in the world. But here's the thing. You may not be able to stop everything, but you can do your part, and that's always enough. And C.S. Lewis addressing that very issue and the weight of glory. He says this, I have received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives, such as the abolition of the slave trade or prison reform or factory acts or tuberculosis, not by those who think they can achieve universal justice or health or peace. I think the art of life consists in tackling each immediate evil as well as we can. So with that, I will close with this. Communion servers, go ahead out. You're going to miss this phenomenal verse. You'll have to read it on your own later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 says this. So we keep on praying for you. Asking our God to enable you. I just realized we did communion already. <laughs> That's why. You... I'm just giving you a phenomenal illustration of the ability to humble myself. <laughs> I often look like a fool on stage. Let me try this again, all right? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. Still a great verse says this. So we keep on praying for you. Asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power, hear this, to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. How do I know God's will for my life? Well, did your faith prompt you to do something? Yep, go do it. There's God's will.
Then the name of the Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live. And you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do right now then is close in prayer. And since we don't have communion, a moment for you to seek the Lord now. Here's my prayer for you. Leave with your marching orders today. Please don't just go home and watch more football. Until Jesus returns, there will be more and more and more football. By God's grace. Consider how you can leave today and become like Christ. Let me pray over you, Father in heaven. God, would you stir in our hearts? God, right now, some of them in this room need to, um, they need to humble themselves and repent. They've got a sin in their life. They didn't just mess up. They've got a sin in their life. They are camped out in. And is eating them for lunch. It's ruining them. It's leading them to destruction and despair and shame and all kinds of stuff. And God, their pride is preventing them from repenting and turning to you. God, may they see your justice and be afraid. And may they see your mercy and be drawn near and know and know that time with you is a blessing. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Father, send your spirit on us. And God, we know you are right here, right now. And whatever we're dealing with, you are going to deal with us in love, in mercy. So Father, Father, come be in us. Use us. Change us. Shape us. Form us. Conform us to the likeness of your Son. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who has been hurt by someone dramatically right now. I just pray, God, would you reveal to them just how good and kind you are? Help them to just love the person who has hurt them. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.